All right, all right. I hope you guys are doing well. Welcome to Village Church. Uh, man, special welcome to you if you are new and week two of Abbotsford. Good to have you guys. We're really jacked about what we're doing. We're going through the book of Psalms. And so if you have a Bible, Psalm chapter eight is where we are. Uh, my name is Mark. I am the senior pastor of this church. Believe it or not, such a fantastic title for me. Oh, because I look and feel senior right now. Uh, but... That just means that I'm kind of over all of the now six sites and the vision and the teaching of uh, this church and really excited to have you. We've always been a church that isn't just a church unto hanging out and being together, but actually a church to reach unchurched, dechurched people. That was me growing up. And so if that's you and you're here, honestly, a special welcome to you. And the book of Psalms is a fantastic book for you to be in journeying with our church in uh, if you just started attending because... It's this great kind of movement between really being down and out and looking at suffering and the pain of life and how life really feels when things aren't going right and you keep praying and hoping that God answers, but it feels like heaven is brass and there is no God and maybe you're an atheist or an agnostic or a, of another religion or whatever and you're exploring. And then there's Psalms and we've seen a bunch of those th through the first seven chapters, but now we hit one that's actually uh, fun. Uh, it's exciting. It's positive. He starts to actually get jacked and say God is good, which is great because sometimes life is like that. Sometimes life is great. Uh, Derek Kidner, who's an Old Testament scholar, wrote uh, two uh, volume commentary series on the book of Psalms. And here's what he says about this psalm that we're talking about today, Psalm chapter 8. He says this, this psalm is an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be, celebrating as it does the glory and grace of God, rehearsing who he is and what he's done and relating us and our world to him, all with a masterly economy of words and in a spirit of mingled joy and awe. And that's the beautiful part. And if you need more inspiration, Pastor Ken told me that this was the first psalm he ever memorized. So if that inspires you, then pay attention for that reason alone. All right, so here's the reality of Psalm chapter 8. We as a culture have all kinds of what psychologists call mental maps, meaning we kind of map out realities based on things. And so we have, um, we need a direction to get to a certain place. And so we have maps to try to get us there. This is meaning, this is sexuality, this is money, this is work, this is how I get joy and purpose in my life. And all worldviews have different mental maps. If you're an agnostic, you have one mental map, but, uh, or, or a Muslim and you have a certain map, or a Buddhist and you have a certain map, if you're a Christian, these are all mental maps to move us from here to here. That's what life is about, and every worldview has them. I was in Edmonton this week speaking at a conference, and um, Myself and Michael Chinchilla, who is our uh, Calgary pastor now, he uh, and I were there. He was traveling with me, and we had to get from the hotel to the conference center. Well, it was minus 50, which isn't even human. I'm not sure why anyone even lives in Edmonton. But anyways, so we had to get from here to here, and I didn't want to go outside, so we had to go through some underground thing called a pedway. I don't even know what they were talking about. And so, like, you just go here and here. And so him and I are both directionally challenged. We have our gifts, but we have our weaknesses. And... We didn't know what was going on. And so he thought, okay, I know what to do. And so we went down and we got going and we were 30 minutes going in a circle. We were in a parking garage at one point. Then we ended up outside and I got really mad at him because my face froze just from the, just from the like 30 seconds outside. I was like, gosh, this is like the revenant. All right, I'm like dying inside of killing animals to stay warm. Um, 
And so then we went back inside. I said, let's give up on the whole thing. And we went back inside. And the next day, we said, how are we going to find this place? And we, we saw someone. We're like, do you know how to get there? They're like, yes. And so we followed someone who had been there before and can show us the way. Here's the beautiful part about mental maps. You and I, if you're exploring spirituality, a worldview, you have to figure out what's the best one, not just the one that feels good to you. And the thing is, the best way to do that is to actually grab a mental map from someone who's been there. This is what the, the, the treasure of scripture gives us. When we start thinking about life, sexuality, money, family, work, whatever, don't just sit around and come up with values and ideas yourself in a vacuum. Here we have the scriptures to tell you, here's what God thinks about all of these things in life. And Jesus shows up as a rabbi and says, I've been there. I know what's right. I know what's wrong. I know how you should flourish. Let me tell you and then submit yourself to me. That's the idea. And so it all begins, as this psalm is going to talk about, with understanding things about God. Look at how it starts. Oh Lord, oh Lord, our Lord. It starts with God, not you. I know when you show up to church, maybe you want to sit here and you want to talk for 45 minutes about your Enneagram number and how unique you are. Or seven principles to a better idea for communication in your marriage. And all that's great. And all that's necessary. And we'll get there. But the bottom line is, everything starts with a proper vision and version of God himself. You got to get that right. Tozer said the most important thing about someone in the end is what they think about when they think about God. If you don't get that right, life falls apart. And so here this psalm starts in the right place. It says, oh Lord, our God. You gotta get God right. God is one and three. Eternally one, eternally distinct. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's what Christianity comes along and tells us. That Jesus shows up and shows us the Father. The Holy Spirit is the person of God that lives in us. Sent because Jesus died on a cross, rose again, rose into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit so that you could literally have God living in you as a temple, which was the fulfillment of a version from an archetype in the Old Testament where the presence of God resided in a temple. Here's the vision of God that you worship. That's who you follow. That's who the proposition when you think about Christianity to follow is. And then it says, oh Lord, our God. And here's what I love about that. Because Remember last week I talked about the fact that it was really important that he says, oh Lord, my God. And I said, it's all about a personal relationship with Jesus. You have to make God personal to you. Oh Lord, my God. Now, this is a bit different because this says, oh Lord, our God. And what that means, here, here's what's beautiful about it. It critiques the modern version of life, which is that you are an individual who's autonomous and you have no impact on anybody else. And the only thing that matters is your personal life. The only thing that matters is you and your autonomous freedom to think and believe whatever you want to do with your body, with your time, with your money, with your life, with your family. And the scriptures push back against it and go, no, 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 you don't get to do that. It's not just, oh Lord, my God. That's beautiful. And there's a part of that. You've got to have a devotional life. My wife and I, 2020, we started fresh. We're like, okay, we wake up every morning, we go downstairs, we brew up coffee, we sit by the fire and we do our devotions and we got iPads that, that go through the Bible in a year and you kind of click through the chapters you've read. And now we're a little competitive, so I've noticed that she's a little ahead of me. So when she puts her coffee down and kind of goes, I, I click those off so she can't see that she's read them. And she comes back, she's like, I thought I read these. I'm like, no, you're behind me. All right, because... 
Don't tell her that. I'm just telling you. But the reality is, of course, we all need that devotional life because it's about you and Jesus, of course. But there's a piece of that that modern evangelicalism and Christianity appeals to almost exclusively without being communal. He says the Lord, our God, meaning you have to enter in to the discipline and the exhortation and the, um, the accountability of the church collectively. You don't just get to be an individual. It means you got to pay for other people to be here. It means you've got to carry the burdens of other people with you. Call people out. Have them call you out. Use your spiritual gifts. Become part of a community of people, a localized church, and you join the historic universal church. That's the part of Christianity that people don't like because they think they're an individual who can believe what they want, do what they want with their time. He just said, no, no, it's collective. It's communal. It's you become part of the church communally. Now, let me give you an example of this. This is my book, The Problem of God. Right? This is, not a, this is not a commercial. Best book of the year. Um, so how did this book ever come about? This wasn't... Now, if, if you have an individualized vision of reality, you're going to say to yourself, you write a book in a vacuum, and then it gets published because you call a publisher up and you say, do this. The reality is, I originally had an agent... And I said, I would like you to be my agent because I heard you can't publish a book unless I have an agent. She was in the States and she said, Canadians aren't going to sell books. I don't want to be your agent. Nobody in Canada is a Christian. Nobody cares. And I said, yeah, but if we really do it well, I think we can do okay. She said, okay, I'm going to take a year off. I'm going to go maternity leave. You try to build up your social media sites and you try to, you know, get a bunch of followers so then we can publish you maybe. I'll talk to you when I get back. So I did none of that because I was busy, you know, pastoring a church, running a family. So I did none of those things. She came back after a year. I said, okay, you want to publish the book now? I got ideas. I've written a couple chapters. She's like, no. And then one day she called me up. She said, you know what? I was thinking about you the other day. Let's do it. And all of a sudden she was jacked. I wrote three chapters, put a proposal together. She said, the last thing you've got to do in regard to this proposal, if we're going to get you published, is you've got to do a video that sells yourself to these publishers that shows them that you're an interesting person that they should publish. And so I said, would you throw me some examples? So she throwed me examples of, of pastors and they're all in their nice suits and they're in their office surrounded by books. They're like, hey, I'm really important. You should publish me. And so I'm like, oh, okay. So what I did is I did a parody video of that. <laughs> all right. And I made fun of it. I sat in my office, I'm like, hey, everyone, my name is Mark Clark. I'm really smart. Look at all my books. And I'm just kind of looking into the camera. And all of a sudden, one of our staff members comes in. He goes, what are you doing? This is silly. And then I got, the rest of the video was me forcing our staff on camera to say nice things about me, all right? And it, it was like the office. Like we would zoom in on them and they were clearly being forced by me off to say, say something. And they're reading scripts, all right? So I'm like, this is beautiful. So I, I think I'm gonna send this agent this and she's gonna run down the hall and go, you gotta see this. And she emails me back. She says, what is this? And I'm like, this is the best pitch video you've ever seen. That's what that is. And she's like, no, it's not. You're fired. What? She sent me a contract and fired me. I've never been fired from anything in my life. I worked at Canadian Tire pushing carts around. I spent half the time in the bathroom waiting to go home. 
They didn't even fire me. And now I'm getting fired from you? I don't, she fired, so I'm done. My publishing career is over. I'm never gonna get this stuff that I really believe can help the church and help non-Christians actually meet Jesus. It's gonna sit in my computer and do nothing until one day my friend Larry Osborne Two weeks later, calls me up. So what are you doing? Larry Osborne runs a church. He's published five or six books through Zondervan, which is the biggest Christian publishing company in the world. So what are you doing? I said, hanging out with my family. He said, what happened with your book? I said, I got fired. <laughs> he said, why? I said, I don't know. I'm too ahead of the times. <laughs> and he goes, oh, have you written any? I said, yeah, I've written three chapters. He goes, send them to me. And he sends them, I sent them to him. And two days later, he calls me back. He goes, I just read through this. This is amazing stuff. I'm like, thank you. And he's like, would you mind if I just took this manuscript and put it on the desk of the president of Zondervan? Let's just skip the agents and go right to Zondervan. I said, well, of course. <laughs> One day later, guy from Zondervan calls me up, says, I'm sending you a contract right now. We want to publish this book. Now, what is that? That is an example of how the only way that I was able to accomplish something in my life that I wanted to accomplish, a goal of flourishing and influence, was not by leaving it to me, but having the church itself come around to help me accomplish this goal. I needed Larry Osborne. And Larry Osborne needed the guys before him. And the church, needed, see, this is what the reality, if you want to accomplish anything in your life that's of influence, that's amazing, that has flourishing, it's not going to be because you sit around and do it yourself. That's what this psalm's trying to say. It's trying to plead with you. Do not think you're going to do everything yourself. It's, oh Lord, our Lord. It's communal. It's together. It's Jesus saying, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Not, I will build you up personally and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In fact, if you try to do Christianity on your own, hell and uh, Hades might actually prevail against you. I will build my church and the gates of Hades and hell won't prevail against it. But if you try to do this thing on your own, you might get prevailed against. You might actually, I was meeting with a guy the other day and he's like, hey, listen, I don't know that Satan is more mad about a Christian movement in Canada, in history, more than what's going on at Village Church right now. I don't know that Satan is more angry about anything than people meeting Jesus across the country and the vision that you guys have right now and the movement of the Spirit of God that is coming through the preaching of the gospel across Canada right now. And here's what that means, Mark. He wants to kill you and your family. I'm like, thanks for the encouragement, bro. I'm out. But it's true. So what do I do? The gates of hell will not prevail against Mark as an individual by himself? No. Against my church, I need you to pray for me, to fast for me, to make sure that I'm protected and, that, and then I do the same for you. This is what Jesus is talking. It's communal. It's together. And this is how we flourish in the end. I did young adult ministry for so many years and I would have parents walk up to me and say, I can't believe it. 
Do you know my kid came up through the youth group and then he got to college and he left his faith? And all these people who are 18 and 19 and 25, they've all left the church. They don't care about God anymore. What can you do about it? What can the church, I can't believe the church does. And I say to, hold on a sec, break down for me what their life looked like growing up. Talk to me about, were they part of a youth group? Well, no, they had baseball on Wednesdays, so they couldn't go to youth group. They had soccer, they had football, they had hockey. Okay, what Sunday look like? You prioritize coming together communally to worship and do communion and serve and give generously at the church and sacrifice your life and time communally as part of the historic universe. No, no, we had soccer then and then, and then we had dance in the evening, in the evening so, so we couldn't really, okay. So, so here's what you taught your kid. That, that, as I heard one speaker say one time, that kicking a stupid ball was more important than the God of the universe. And then you come and you complain to me about it. That's collateral damage for your sin. Why? Because you know how your kid is actually going to flourish in life? When they're part... You know what the most... You know, sociologists tell us this. You know who influences your kid the most? You until a certain age. And then who is the most influential person on your kid's life once they hit 13, 14 years old? Their peers. So what kind of peers did you surround your kid with? Peers who love Jesus? Peers who are part of the thing called the ecclesia, the church, the called out people of God that influenced them in regard to loving Jesus and trying to follow him with all their life? Or did you completely separate your life time, energy away from the rhythms of the church. That's what we're talking about. And that's a product of classic, modern evangelical Christianity that's 100 years old that thinks you can do things all by yourself since the invention of the television, which told us we're all autonomous creatures that can sit in our house and get information and content. And that's what Christianity is about. And this Psalm just blew all of it up and said, you need to surrender to the people of God that's how you're going to flourish in life. Oh Lord, our God, our Lord. And then he says this, how majestic is your name in all the earth? You know what I love about this? There's a big exclamation mark in the Hebrew. You know what he just did? He actually kind of got jacked and he's like, how majestic is your name? Like he's, this guy's being expressive. Can I just, can I just like critique? Not that I normally do this. Can I just critique you for a second? Village Church, I think you're too dry bones quiet. Thank you. I get two amens per sermon, all right? You guys are too Presbyterian. Frozen, chosen, dead. I'm trying to, I'm trying to give you the freedom to make some noise. Right? Thank you. That's what I'm talking about. And not just today. I'm talking about, and even all you, you cinema sites that are watching, we got five sites that are in uh, cinemas. We got people here. Uh, listen, I know it's video, and you think I can't hear you. When you say, well, all I'm looking for is, well, I'm, not, I'm not asking you to go, amen, every two seconds. That's annoying, all right? If you do that, leave. What I'm talking about, <laughs> what I'm talking about is like when something hits your soul, like, you can say amen. You, you can give a, give me a grunt. <laughs> give me a yup. Some of you are so, so 
passive and, and quiet and suburban and safe. You just sit there and take in information. Mm -hmm. I can say the greatest thing you've ever heard in your life. You're like, <laughs> like, dude, you can, you can express when something lands. You can express. I'm giving you, I'm giving you the freedom in 2020. Give me an amen one, one time a sermon, right? Give me a hallelujah. Give me a, look at this guy, how majestic. You're like, you're like, yes, I agree with that. Yes, how majestic, yes. I agree with that cognitively in my, in my safe little intro zone. No, he's going, I'm gonna tell the world about it. I agree with something, amen. Verily, verily, that's literally what it means. Truly, truly, this thing's legit. That's my translation. This thing's legit. This just changed my life. This just impacted me. This just did something. That's the idea. And I want to give you all the freedom in the world to express, 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 because that's what he does. Look at him. How majestic, how majestic is your name and all. This is something I'm going to respond with volume about. And then he's got this phrase, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Have you ever wondered if you're new to Christianity and you've come to church for a bit, you hear people talk about the name and it always, when I was 19, I first walked into the church, it always confused me because everyone was like, oh, your name is so great. Your name is so great. And I'm like, you know, and we sing these songs like, what a beautiful name it is. Have you ever like put the non-Christian filter on and go, how weird that sounds? Like, what a beautiful name it is. Like, Jesus, I, I remember walking to church, I'm like, Jesus, yeah, that's a nice name. I mean, Amanda's a nice name. <laughs> right? Tony, it's an all right name, it's beautiful. What does it mean to have a beautiful, like, when I, when I, to the Hebrews, a name was representative of who they were and what they did and their character. And so it was, it was the summation and representative of them and what they were and how, you know, that's what the name was. So when it says how, how, how majestic is your name, it's just not like, oh great, the word Yahweh sounds nice. It's, it's everything you are, everything you represent, everything you've done is majestic. It's, it's huge, it's royal. It's beautiful. That's who God is. And my job, week in and week out, is not to make you feel great about your life. It's for you to be in awe of who God is, that he's unbelievable. And to have your life be so awed by him. Like, that's what it means when it says a name. You and I just, we just, like when I name my kids, I got three daughters, uh, for those of you who are new. Three daughters, 13, 10, and eight years old, all girls who... I love to death and who keep me very busy. Here's their names, all right? The first one's name is Sienna. Now, uh, let me tell you the depths of how we named our kids. Because, you know, the Hebrews, they would like care. Like, if you looked hairy when you were born, they'd go, let's name him Harry in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word for hairy, let's name him. If you were, you know, if you were red, they would say, let's name him Red. All right, we had all these, well, our kids, our first name was Sienna. Um, we, we, we named her after an actress named Sienna Miller, who we saw and we went, we liked how Sienna sounds. And then we were dedicating her at our church at the time. 
And I guess, unbeknownst to us, they wanted to put up the definitions of everybody's name and they didn't ask us. And so we got up there and they were going through all these names. Here is Sarah. That means the Lord's princess or whatever. They're going, and then they get to Sienna and literally they defined it on the screen as reddish brown. I'm like, what? Really? That's the depth. Now our second one is Bella. Bella is named after a girl on a, on a vampire werewolf movie called Twilight. And, 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 and our middle one's name is Hayden. And Hayden, now that's deep, named after Hayden Christensen, the fantastic actor in Star Wars that plays Anakin Skywalker. Now we're, now we're talking. See, this is a reflection of Aaron and I, how deep we are, how we select our names. All of you, see, so our culture doesn't really get it. We're like names, whatever. When he's saying your name is majestic, he's saying your person, who you are, what you do in the world is something that's majestic and beautiful and changes my life. That's what he's trying to say. Now, here's the question. When you call yourself a Christian, three times that term is used in the New Testament. You're literally saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a little Christ. You put that name on yourself. The question is, what do you do with that name? Do you represent it well? I remember when I got suspended from high school, my mom said, I can't believe you embarrassed me. And I'm like, but I'm the one who got suspended. How is that an embarrassment to you? And she said, because you represent my name. You are my person. And so Jesus, remember that scathing text in the gospels where Jesus says, if you are embarrassed of me and my name in front of the world, the son of man will be embarrassed of you when we get in front of the father. That's convicting to us. And so what he's saying is how majestic is your name? I'm going to take on your name. Your name is royal. Your name is large. Your name is the biggest thing on earth. I'm going to represent that well. All of this comes down to you and I understanding that the whole message of the Bible is about the greatness and the beauty of God. A guy named David Platt wrote this. He says this, the message of biblical Christianity is not God loves me, period. That's a lot of modern preaching. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And then we stop there. He goes, that's not the message of biblical Christianity. He says, as if we were the object of our own faith. That's what that kind of preaching will lead to. God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. And we're about to see this in the Psalm, if we ever get to it. The idea that you're great on the one hand, but if that's all you hear, then you become the object of your own faith. He says this, the message of biblical Christianity, however, is God loves me, why? So that I might make him his ways, his salvation, his glory, his greatness known among all nations. God is the object of our faith and Christianity centers around him. We are not the end of the gospel. God is. That's what he's saying. So look at what he says. You have then, rest of verse one, you have set your glory above the heavens. The glory of God is what God is all about. We can go through scriptures. We've, we've unpacked it here before. Isaiah 43, Isaiah 48, Ezekiel, Psalm 23. My glory is why I do anything. The reason I move, the reason I act, the reason I move king's hearts this way, the reason I love, the reason I do everything I do 
It's not about you. It's about me. It's about my glory being felt and shone in the world so that everybody can feel my weight. That's the idea. And so when he says, you've set your glory above the heavens, it's up here. It's above all things. It's above everything else, above the, see, we, we sing these songs like, above all power, above all things. And then we, we kind of go with these songs and we say that above, you thought of me above all. You thought of me above all. And the reality is the scriptures come against that and go, no, no, I thought of my glory actually above all. I moved and did things for my glory, not primarily because of you, but because of me. I'm the most important thing in the universe. Nobody is more into God in the universe than God himself, which is the best thing for us. Because if he wasn't, then he'd be an idolater. He would love you over himself, and then the universe would self-destruct. Kind of. So, He says he's above the heavens. And here's what's great about that. God is great. God is all powerful. God is the best. He's better than anything else. Which is, by the way, the solution to the biggest modern problem we have. See, once you start to understand the greatness and the majesty of God, here's what begins to happen in your life. You begin to go, man, I treasure God above everything else. Which means, you know what the biggest threat to modern Christianity is? I was listening to a speaker this week and he was talking about this. And I think I agree. You know what he said? The biggest threat to modern Christianity is we have the breakdown of the home. We have pornography. We have violence. We have um, the shallowness of Christianity. We have all of those things. He said, I don't think that's the biggest threat to modern Christianity. Here, and maybe this is why you're here today, to hear this piece right here. He said, I think the biggest threat to modern Christianity is distraction. That your spiritual life is going to bomb. You are going to become an empty shell of a human being because of distraction. You can't focus in on God, the scriptures, prayer, fasting. You can't do it because your brain just keeps being distracted. You know what the biggest threat to your life then is, if that's true? It's not these massive things that we think about. It's, it's that thing in your right pocket right now. That is the biggest threat to your spiritual vitality and formation in the future. And so some of you are like, well, hey man, I'm fighting it out. I'm not hitting porn. I'm doing good. Awesome. But what happens when you hear ding? Ding! You know what the biggest threat to your life might not, it might not be pornography. It may be little Lucy's soccer league and making sure she gets in another sport. It might be that thing that runs you ragged and busy all the time. Busy, busy, busy. I gotta go here. I gotta go there. I gotta do this. I gotta do that. And you start counting cars that are lined up at the red light because you're trying to find the shortest lane. If that's your life, your spiritual life will die. You're too busy, man. You got too much going on. Talk to people. We as a church, imagine collectively we became the kind of people who, who structured our life in such a way that when you hung out in the foyers of these sites and when you said, how are things going, that the answer wasn't, it's busy. How often do you say, it's busy? Oh, and you gotta, I gotta go get my kid. I gotta get them to X. And, I, and then I gotta move them from there to there. Then they gotta do this. Then they gotta do that. Then they gotta do this. Then you got no time for God. You have no time for the Holy Spirit to speak to you. 
You have no time to prioritize the kind of things that are gonna make you flourish spiritually at all. It's gone because of distraction and distraction. And he's going, man, if I actually saw you as glorious, I wouldn't be distracted anymore. I'd be so in awe of you. You'd see the greatness. You have set your glory above the heavens. I mean, you're so big, you're so great, you're so large. I'm just in awe of you. And then he goes, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So 20 times this phrase babies is used throughout the Old Testament. And it's the idea that you have these small creatures made in the image of God, babies, that he makes... And it's usually constantly in the context of them being vulnerable and God protecting them. That's the idea here. You've established strength because of your foes. There's enemies against people, but you're going to protect the vulnerable babies. And so the idea is, um, let, me, let me extract this. It's that oftentimes we look at the world and we see how bad it is. There's a lot of babies who suffer. There's a lot of bad things that go down around the world. But this is what philosophers call the problem of good. We oftentimes talk about the problem of evil, about how bad things are. But the problem of good is you and I philosophically don't know if 99% of the evil and the terrible things that could be happening in the universe aren't being held back by a wonderful, glorious God who's for the babies, for the weak, for the vulnerable. That's the idea. And so he's saying, you're for, you're for like, like when, when things are going really well in your life, do you just automatically, before your feet hit the ground, make sure that you give credit to God for that? So versus coming to him when you need, 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 complaining to him when things go wrong in your life, that every day you wake up and the baby was protected because of this, you go, that's because the strength of God. I have a good, I have water I can drink. I have clothes, I got a roof over my head. Thank you, God, for those graces. That ain't you, bro. That's him. That's the point. That's his strength, not your strength. And the more you begin to realize that, then you begin to understand this. Look at what he says. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? It's this idea that you've got infants, babies, and if you, if they're going to they're gonna declare things that are true about God. Have you ever had kids around? And this is what Jesus does. You go read Matthew 21. He flips the tables over. All the religious elite don't like it. And, and all the children are, so here's what happened. He flips the tables over. All the religious people go, I can't believe he flipped the tables over. And then Matthew says, he's the only gospel that tells us this. The children were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, we love you. The kiddos. The and then Jesus quotes this psalm. The religious elite get mad and he goes, don't you know that babies and infants are going to draw out the praise of God? Don't you, you should look to kids because you're going to learn stuff from kids. Have you ever learned stuff? My kids teach me stuff all the time. My uh, second daughter the other day, she's like, daddy, you're strong, but God is stronger than you. And I'm like, beautiful. She's like, dad, you're the strongest person. Well, she, and then she stopped. She said, no, actually, Trevor's stronger than you. She names my friend and says he's stronger than me. I'm like, babe, that is offensive to me. I'm your dad. She's like, don't worry, you have nicer hair than him. I'm like, he's bald. 
But, but these kids in those moments, but here's the question, do you have the ability to actually sit and learn from their theological statements or not? To be humbled enough because here's all these things. You got the babies, you got the infants, you got the, I look at your heavens, you, I see the stars, I see the moon, and then this pivot in verse four. So what is man then? Why do you care about me? You made the universe. Let me give you some stats. If we were traveling the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second, if we went here to the moon, traveling at the speed of light, it would take two seconds, okay? It would take four years, though, to reach the nearest star to Earth. It would take 100,000 years to cross just our galaxy, traveling 186,000 miles per second. There are 100 billion galaxies in the known universe and 2 million light years to reach the next closest galaxy. What do you care about us for? What is man to you? The point of this is two things. On the one hand, he's saying, you crafted us in your image. It's beautiful. Man's a beautiful thing. You, I don't care what size you are. I don't care if you're big or small. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what, listen, God loves you. He made you in his image. And yes, he made the stars, but he cares about the microcosm, not just the macrocosm. He cares about the microcosm of your life and what you're going to do tomorrow. He cares. He cares. He, he cares about your heart. He cares about your emotional state. He cares about your fears. He cares about the things you cry about. He cares about the things you're joyous about. What is man that you actually care about me? Oh, but I do. I do. I do. But the other thing is all that should humble you. Like a baby and an infant, you should learn to be humble. And when you start to think that you're cool, look up at the stars and go, my gosh, I am so small. You have to be able to take those moments of humility. Listen, okay, um, Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve is one of the biggest days of the year for a church, for a preacher. You know, you get up, you work really hard because most amount of people are probably going to come between Christmas Eve and Easter. So, you, so that was me, man. I put a, you saw me, right? I had my nice suit on. Can I get an Amen. Right? That's right. Twice a year with that thing. I look legit. All right. Christmas Eve, I was the man. I had kids sitting here eating out of my little baby Yoda illustration. They were like, oh, this is the greatest preaching since Spurgeon. All right. I was in the zone Christmas Eve. I was mad. So legit. You know what happened after? I went home. My wife said, hey, we're going to a party. I said, yeah, what's the party? She's like, we all dress up in our pajamas, onesies. And everyone at the party shows up in their onesies and we hang out till midnight. I said, my onesie is a little small. So I put on this onesie, all right? And I should be wearing shorts. I'm just gonna leave it right there because this onesie is a little tight. So I should have shorts on, but I, they, so I walked downstairs with shorts and I'm like, hey, my kids go, dad, Get those shorts off. You got to go straight onesie. And so what is the button that pulls down like that nonsense? I look like a fool. And I'm like, so we're going to show up at a party and everyone, all the men are going to be wearing onesies? Yep, that's the plan. All right. We pull up to this party. This is not a joke. I have a bunch of nonsense. All my girls run up to the front door. They run in. I'm the last guy. I walk up. I look in the bay window. There are 30 adults in the room dressed up 
in beautiful suits because they just came from the Christmas Eve sermon. <laughs> Sipping, this is a true story, man. Sipping their drinks, eating their little thing, and I'm standing there in a onesie. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And my wife's like, huh? I walk in the front door, and these adults, full-grown adults, are walking up to me awkwardly like, hey, that was a really good sermon. That was, I'm like, really? Thanks for the invite. My wife pulls her phone out, checks it, misread on the text. No one's wearing a onesie is what the text said. So I said, are they showing a picture of this right now? I sat there for two hours at a party wearing a onesie. Everyone else fully dressed. You know what that was? The Lord just took me from the heights of brilliance. Everyone worshiped me at 5 p.m. And by eight, I was a fool. I was an idiot. I was a child, an infant. And that's the Lord going, who do you think you are, bro? You think people are, ooh, look at his big words. Ooh, he impacted my life. Ooh, it's so great. Here, I'm going to make you show up to a party in a onesie. Why? Why? Because I care about you. Verse 4, what is the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Because that's what you do. You humble us so we can hear you. Once in a while, you know what the best thing for you? I was listening to Robert Downey Jr. He was sitting in front of a whole bunch of famous people and he was introducing Mel Gibson. And Mel Gibson has had his sins and made his mistakes. And Robert Downey Jr., who was an addict <clears throat> and being sober, was introducing Mel Gibson to a group of movie stars. And he just said this. This man taught me how to get through the stuff that I went through in life. And he said, one of the things that he taught me was in life, sometimes you have to hug the cactus. Because when you hug the cactus, you get so humble that you know there's nothing left. And when you're at that place of absolute humility, then you can actually stand up. Some of you, you're really into yourself and you think you're a big deal. He will humble you. Just take it now, hug the cactus now. Realize you're sinful and without him, you don't have a day. You don't have one joy. And then, of course, Jesus is the ultimate expression of the Son of Man, who the book of Hebrews says he made a little lower than the angels, meaning he was here and he came down in the incarnation and became a human being, lived a perfect life in your place, died on a cross. He hugged the cactus so that ultimately you wouldn't have to feel the judgment of God. Have you responded in worship to that reality. Jesus, I pray that you would do that work among us and we'd be humble enough to actually hear from you and understand that though you made everything and you are all powerful, you actually care about us and that the people who are listening to this right now would be humble enough to actually see the beauty of the God who made everything, all the stars, all, everything this psalm's raving about, and yet you got 
lowered to a little lower than the angels, the book of Hebrews says, in order to live a perfect life in our place and die on a cross. And then you rose again to give us life. If there are people that listening to this, watching this right now across the sites in our churches that haven't given their life to that reality, I pray that they do. Do that work among us. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen.